From our studios in Colleyville, Texas, it's the TWIAM Association Tech Ops ASAP Podcast with host Brad Bruger. Take it away, Brad. Welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. Today, I'm joined by Bud Brown from the IAM, and we were recently able to talk to Scott Griffith. I got to meet Scott in 2005 when I started working in the Tech Ops ASAP program. If you don't know who Scott Griffith is, he's the person we should credit for starting ASAP in the United States. In fact, many people call him the godfather of ASAP. I think it's an important thing to be able to talk to Scott and understand the origins of ASAP, why it started, what were the circumstances that drove us into being able to get this program started. This will be a series of episodes covering a host of topics around just culture ASAP and aviation safety in general. With that said, let's start this series with a little background on Scott. When we sat down and talked to Scott, we kind of asked him to give us his bio, and here's how that went. Well, thanks, Brad. And I want to start by thanking both you and Bud for the opportunity to, to tell the story. I think it's an important story for um, all of your members and listeners. And the TWU and the IM both played a very important role in how this came, came about. So my story is kind of a quirky story. I've led sort of a quirky life. I was a pilot, and I started at American Airlines in 1984. But in 1985, I was doing a walk-around inspection on a Boeing 727, preparing to fly from Dallas-Fort Worth to New York, LaGuardia. And in the course of the walk-around, I looked up, and I saw a Delta L-1011 coming in to land south at the airport, and it was in distress. And as I could see off to the, to the west of the airport boundary, I could see there was a thunderstorm developing. And the plane, as it came in, got so low that it actually struck a, a car on the, the north side of the airport, Highway 114, killing the occupant. And the plane bounced up, and uh, as many of you may know from the story, the plane hit a, a, an above-ground water tower, cartwheeled, and of course, uh, the ensuing response was uh, to the disaster. It was what everybody now recognizes as Delta 191, the uh, fateful wind shear microburst crash. After I saw the plane crash, I was continuing to walk around or, or actually standing still looking at it. And a few seconds later, uh, this wind field came and, and knocked me to the ground. And what was interesting about the wind field was that it occurred before the rain from the thunderstorm actually struck the airport. So looking back on it, we now know the cause of the crash was a, was a downdraft known as a microburst. And what we didn't know as an industry at that time was that microbursts were phenomenon separate and apart from just a thunderstorm. And that the rain that was reflected on the pilot's radar didn't reflect the intensity or the visibility of the actual wind field. So in essence, what the pilots thought coming in was the danger getting into a thunderstorm where the actual wind itself was away from the thunderstorm, and that was what proposed, or that's what brought the plane down. So after this accident, I uh, took a leave of absence from American Airlines and went to continue my graduate education in uh, physics at Texas A&M University. Actually, continue my education, I mean by that, I did research for NASA in Boulder, Colorado, and, and I got to work with some of the preeminent uh, wind shear microburst uh, experts in the field, and we developed a LIDAR system, which became an airborne platform to measure clear air turbulence and microburst wind shear. But the metaphor for that, for me, became the, 
the insight that the pilots crashed or the plane crashed because the pilots literally could not see the danger ahead of them, the, the risk in front of them. So that became a, a driving force in my life that in order to, uh, to manage risk, we must first see it and understand it. Now, this stuck in my head. I continued on with the, with the work at NASA, but then I ended up doing some test pilot work for, for them, uh, developing new procedures for pilots to respond or escape from uh, the microburst encounters. But the thought kept in my brain that because the pilots couldn't see what was in front of them, there was no hope that they could have managed it appropriately. So when I came back from, from doing the, the work at NASA, back to the airline, the Allied Pilots Association uh, appointed me to the National Safety Committee. And over the years, that thought that we can only manage what we can see and understood or understand became a very powerful driving force. And as I was representing the pilots of the airline, I recognized that most of what the regulators knew about the risk came from plane crashes and then audits and inspections, which was a tiny fraction of the risk that we were seeing at the Pilots Association. So from that point, I was fortunate enough to get appointed to a program that everybody recognizes as the NASA Aviation Safety Reporting System or Reporting Program. And I was sitting on this advisory subcommittee at NASA out in, at Ames in the late 1980s. And the thought struck me as I was sitting there that all the information that we had been putting into the NASA program was going into a repository where academics were looking at the data and really not doing much with it. And I made the observation to this subcommittee, advisory subcommittee, that what are we achieving by collecting all this data? And they looked at me as if I had, you know, spoken some heresy and said, well, what would you do? And the thought struck me. I said, well, I would create a different process where the unions, the airlines, and the regulator, that is the FAA, would come together and review what we were seeing. Because it wasn't doing much good sitting in a, in a research database. And one of, the, one of the members was Admiral Donald Ingen, who had been a previous FAA administrator. And he looked at me and said, young man, you do realize that the FAA holds the certificates of both the airlines and the individual airmen. And I said, well, even better. That's why they should be a part of the program. Now, as a union representative at that point, you might say, why would you make a comment like that? Well, the reason was that pilots, at least in my experience at that time, held the, the regulator at arm's length. We, we feared the licensing action. And you, you might say, and it's been said, that pilots would only report what they could not hide. Now, we, we did that as a natural consequence of you could lose your license, which means you could lose your livelihood. Now, as a union official, I'd get calls at two in the morning about things that were happening, and, and I'd make my best recommendation, and we'd represent them. But the process itself wasn't achieving what we had hoped, that is to prevent the planes from crashing. And so we made the pitch to uh, the Allied Pilots Association when I came back and said, we'd like to start a different program. And I had in mind three separate existing programs that had already been operating. One was the Air Carrier Voluntary Self-Disclosure Program, which in 1992 uh, had became become available to the airlines themselves. And the concept there was if the airline recognizes a violation and discloses it within a timely manner, 
in exchange for that disclosure to the regulator, there would be no legal certificate action. Well, concept made sense from a, from a macro perspective of, of the airline, but that same benefit was not extended to the individual employees or the airmen. And so I took that idea, and I also looked at what we had done with NASA ASRS and recognized there was value in collecting all this information from airlines across the country. Even though it was in an academic repository, it still offered us enormous value if we could just see inside what those data collection efforts were, were producing. And then the third program, which actually ties it in now here to our, our story today, U.S. Air, Airways at the time had started a program about the same time in 1992 called the Altitude Awareness Program. That program was actually uh, originated by the Pilots Association for U.S. Air, the Airline Pilots Association. And uh, another little curious coincidence, uh, one of the younger members of their committee was a young man named Robert Sumwalt, who today many of you may know as the chairman of the National Transportation Safety Board, and a couple of other union leaders, one in particular, Don McClure. And these advocates were ahead of their time. They said, let's take reports involving altitude deviations, and if the pilots will turn it in to us at the union, we'll share it with the regulator and the airline so long as you won't take legal action against the pilots. And so they ran the program for, uh, I don't know how long it was, a year perhaps. And then the program died because the regulator didn't know what to do after that. Well, about that time, I came along and said, well, here's another option. Let's not just restrict it to uh, altitude deviations. Let's not just restrict it to self-disclosures that the airline's involved in, but let's take all of this on any risk that a pilot or a dispatcher or a mechanic or a flight attendant or a fleet service clerk could offer and let's build a program based on that. And we called it ASAP, Aviation Safety Action Partnership at the time. It's since been amended and named to be called Aviation Safety Action Program, but still the concept is one of partnership and collaboration. That was a fantastic journey that Scott took in his career to get to the place where he started ASAP. Now let's take a little bit of time and let Scott tell us about how we got the ASAP program started. So we started the program in, on June 1st in 1994. I wrote the original draft and had a gentleman named Tom Chittister, who was our uh, manager of uh, crew resource management that later became Human Factors. And Tom and I worked together along with the airline and the FAA to establish these rules and conditions. We called it, at the time, a letter of agreement, what's become commonly known as Memoranda of Understanding today under the advisory circular. But at that time, we called it a letter of agreement because we wanted it to have the same level of commitment that a labor negotiation agreement would have. That is, you commit, both sides commit to something. That was vitally important because we knew that, that individual employees weren't likely to, to participate in a program without some strong assurance at how they would be treated from that. And as we will talk later about the concept of just culture, that the pilots and mechanics and dispatchers all wanted to know what's going to happen if I participate in this. So we set up some conditions for participation or criteria for participation, which, by the way, at the time, the only thing we had to go on was the criteria that had been established under the Aviation Safety Reporting System, the ASRS. And I'll speak a little bit later about how that language is today outdated, 
As we look at how American Airlines and a few others have adopted just culture criteria for their programs, but we, we, there's an interesting story about this that I'll, I'll relate. The criteria for acceptance in most airlines still remain the same. They, they exclude events that involve uh, controlled substances, drugs, and alcohol. And one of the criteria for exclusion was the accident, the smoking hole, if a plane were to crash. Interestingly enough, after we had been running our demonstration program at American for a few years, American Airlines had, had an accident. It was a, a plane, 727, coming into Chicago O'Hare, and the plane actually touched short of the runway. Thankfully, everyone survived. Uh, the plane was, was, was uh, a whole loss, as I recall. But at that time, because the criteria that we had taken from NASA said that accidents are off the table, if there's an accident, we will not participate in the ASAP process. It was the FAA who came to us and said, we want this event into ASAP. And I was curious about why, and they said, because we learned so much more through the ASAP process in order to protect the traveling public than we would if we had waited for the NTSB to conduct their investigation. And that the information they gathered during the NTSB investigation isn't sufficient for the FAA to do an adequate job of regulatory oversight. And that was a turning point for us because it started to open up the eyes of people who saw the value in this program. All right, so let's wrap up this episode. And it was great to look back at at some of the history behind ASAP and talking with Scott Griffith. Going forward, we're going to have a few more episodes with Scott. So I'd like you to look out for the link that a new podcast has posted because there's going to be more to come. Thanks for your attention and we will catch you next time. To submit questions or comments, email techopsasap at gmail.com. That's T-E-C-H-O-P-S-A-S-A-P at gmail.com. The Tech Ops ASAP podcast is produced by Tommy Engel.